Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined this week with uh, Dr. Richard Buzzichelli. He's a lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy. And today, our topic that we want to cover is the issue of economics. Uh, in particular, you know, it's, it's been in the media recently with Pope Francis making some statements praising entrepreneurship and talking about hunger. And uh, he has an interesting quote about, uh, about entrepreneurship and a free entrepreneurship. And so today with uh, Dr. Buzzichelli, what we want to do is let's talk about this issue of economics. Maybe we can begin with what is kind of maybe a, a Catholic economic system or what are the characteristics of Catholic economics that we can begin with in kind of structuring our, our own thinking so that we can judge the systems that are before us or those that are being proposed to us by legislators. Right. You know, one of the things that we do in contemporary society, right, is we think we think along sort of two lines, right? Mm-hmm. We think that the choice is between socialism slash communism on the one hand and then capitalism slash unregulated free markets, right, on the other. Mm-hmm. Of course, implicit in this dichotomy is um, an association between free markets and capitalism, right? right? Which, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, is actually a false association. Interesting. But, um, but nonetheless, right, is an association we make in our current thinking. And what this does is it prevents us from really considering the possibility that there could be a third alternative, right? <laughs> and in fact, um, the Catholic the Catholic approach to economic uh, discourse, right, is is neither capitalist nor socialist. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that makes it very difficult for people to hear and understand Catholic teaching on this matter, even many Catholics sure. who in contemporary Western culture are actually thinking um, along the lines of the false dichotomy, right? Right. So what happens is um, at a practical level, when we when we talk to Catholics about economics, right, they they tend either to sound like socialists, right, or on the other hand, um, they, 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 and this would be sort of the minority probably among, mm-hmm. among concerned Catholics, right, would be that they, they sound like, you know, like a, like a, like a robber baron from the, <laughs> you know, 1890s or something, right, laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah. And of course, it, neither of those positions is really a possible view for, for a Catholic to maintain. Mm-hmm. So really, the, the, the truth is something in the middle. And we, we should try to wrap our heads around what that what that is today. You asked me about the, the principle. How yeah, do we look so, at that? so first of all, Catholic teaching does accept the idea of private property, right? Right. So one of the um, one of the things that of course is going to be lacking in communism and socialism is that they don't have a concept really of private property. Right. Right. The goods of the earth are distributed through some third party intermediary right yeah um and uh, that is simply not the way the catholic church understands the matter uh, on the other hand right there is this universal destination of material goods right right <laughs> and so uh one would think well wait a minute i mean you just said that there was such a thing as private property how could there be private property and a universal destination of material goods. I mean, doesn't that mean universal destination of material goods, that the things of this earth belong to everyone? Yeah, they seem like they would contradict, but, but, <laughs> but in I, fact, they don't. They don't, right. So basically, the idea of the universal destination of material goods, right, 
is the idea that when God creates the world, he, he doesn't create the world and its material resources for the benefit of one particular individual or some small group of individuals, mm -hmm. right? Rather, he gives the world to, to all of humanity. Yeah. And thus, every human being has the right to benefit from the goods of the world through the application, right, right. of our work to the extent that it's possible for us to engage in it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we know in the natural structure of humanity that there are some people who are dependent. Right. We know this because every single one of us enters into existence in that condition. We're dependent upon our parents, right? Mm -hmm. And thus, in a very real sense, we enjoy some right of use uh, of the goods of the world that God gives to the benefit of human beings universally, right? right? right. Even though we ourselves don't possess those goods. Okay, so as children, we enter into the world in that condition. If our right. parents didn't feed us because they said we didn't earn it, then they would be guilty of gross <laughs> abuse, right? I mean, this, exactly. would be, this would be really terrible. And so it, uh, it is the case in Catholic thinking, right, that, that some obligation is incurred mm -hmm. at a social level. Now, of course, how we work out the logistics of this is, 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 uh, is something for us to really debate about, right? And something, yeah. it, it, that's where the concrete application of things, it gets really difficult, right? Yeah. But a, a civilized society simply can't uh, ignore the plight of the truly, of, of, of the inherently dependent, right? Yeah. The church teaches that, you know, we have a right to private property, but it's not this absolute unregulated right to where we can use it however we want. That even if, even though we own it, we simply have a kind of a, a, um, a mastery over it, but we're still called to use it for the good of everybody. Right, um, right. So, you know, Pope Francis, who, you know, may be a little hyperbolic on, on this issue, right, mm -hmm. talks about um, how wasting food is a sin. Sure. Okay. Now, actually, while... I don't know how far I would take this in terms of like, you know, um, I don't know, you didn't finish your pork chop or something. And, yeah. And, you know, you scrape the rest off into the garbage. I, I do think it's, it's, you know, it's a mark of probably some kind of vice to habitually waste large amounts of food. Yeah. But I would agree, I would agree with him like at, at, a, at a level of principle, right? Mm -hmm. Here that, like, I'll, I'll give you a crazy example, right? Let's yeah. say that, um, let's say that you have some massive surplus of food mm -hmm. and you decide that you just want to burn it right <laughs> um for entertainment yeah. right in a world in which there are people who um find food difficult to come by right or yeah. they you know they can't they can't really eat as they ought because they they can't afford good nutrition maybe right. they can afford some things but they can't afford good and you're burning perfectly good food right yeah 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 um that seems to me to be a problem, and it seems to me that it seems to me that it violates this this understanding of, of how private property, um, how we enjoy the right of private property from a Catholic perspective. It's not sure. a, as you said; it's not an absolute right. right? Yeah, you, no one has the right to opulence. Right. Okay. And this is now that's something that's a tough sell, right, to the to the American sort of conservative audience, right? Sure. Because people think you have the right to be to live as opulently as as you want to, provided you have um, earned that money through through <laughs> yeah. you know through work, right, or investing or whatever it happens, or maybe you want it in a lottery. But it's your money, so you can do with it what you want. <clears throat> the Catholic Church simply does not agree with that assertion. 
right when it comes to you know the use of our goods this is where the the church really comes in and the you know pope francis in the the recent comment that he made he had this to say which i think kind of he's talking about uh, hunger in the world uh, and he's saying you know it's not because the food is missing he says you know what is lacking is a free and far-sighted entrepreneurship mm-hmm. which ensures adequate production and a solidarity approach which ensures fair distribution. Now, I mean, there's, there's enough in that sentence to offend everybody on all sides. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, you know, what he's, what he's getting at, I think, you know, is within the, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church with regards to these two um, positions we always put as like the only option, socialism or this completely uh, free and uh, uh, capitalism. Right. Whereas the church takes a very different stance. Okay, so you have position of socialism, which essentially denies uh, private property. So, I mean, that's not a tenable position. Uh, what about capitalism? Or at least kind of maybe what what, uh, right. what our experience of capitalism is. Yeah. And what does the church say about that? So let's, um, let's turn the clock back to, um, what was it, 1881 or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for a rerum novarum. Yeah, 1891. 1891, okay. So what was going on there, right? 1891. First of all, it's important to understand, right, that Leo XIII was a pioneer of the modern papacy, right, in that that he was historically uh, really the first pope to habitually use the encyclical, right, right, as a teaching instrument for the universal church, right, in the exercise of of his responsibility as pastor of all the faithful. Okay. Yeah, and um, I'm not going to get into why historically that that move was made, but but he was the first person to do it, and so he he came under a tremendous amount of pressure during the period of the Industrial Revolution, by various interested parties to take sides in their dispute, ah, yeah. because of course you know he 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 was doing this thing with these encyclicals, right? He was going around teaching the whole world. Um, and the whole Catholic world in particular, which, you know, is an important part of the... There are a lot of Catholics in the world. Yeah. So, um, you know, he he was being asked really to take sides. Between what? Between the socialist, communist side, mm-hmm. right, which was, which was really emerging at that time. Remember that, you know, Karl Marx wrote the economic... And he wrote those economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844. So that that's a relatively contemporary document. Document, yeah, for yeah, that, yeah. right? So the the communist movement, right, was was really beginning at this period of time, and it was it was competing for control of the um, of the labor movement, right. right? Alternatively, right, you had the laissez-faire capitalists who commanded enormous amounts of resources. And did not perceive themselves in many instances as having any moral obligations to uh, their employees, right, yeah. or to anyone other than themselves. They um, they didn't see any real any real implication as far as their wealth, right, for sort of recognizing the people whose labor they were monetizing. Yeah, they right? were simply as a means some, to production, right? Right. Right. Yeah. right. So they they essentially um, mechanized the workforce, right. Mm-hmm. It turns out that in Leo's response, right, to this, he um, offended both sides of, <laughs> of this debate. He, he, he actually legitimized neither party. Yeah. And so this is what makes, I think, you know, this encyclical such a pivotal moment in the development of what we now call Catholic social teaching, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
on the one hand, he reaffirms this idea of private property. Right. Right. And so the capitalists say, yeah, he's siding with us. Right. <laughs> and on the other hand, he affirms that 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 the workers are human beings. Right. Yeah. And that when one enters into a relationship with them, a relationship of employment, there is a kind of covenantal relationship. Yeah, he right. affirms fair wages, uh, worker associations. Yeah, he does uh, all that, you know. right? And so, one of the interesting things about this, and this is this is so this will this one really offends, right? Contemporary um, sort of people who like to to characterize themselves as capitalists mm-hmm. today, which is that um, he does not believe that a wage is fair simply because the worker agrees to accept it. Right. Right. And this is. You know, so people people will say, um, who's to determine what a wa- whether a wage is fair, yeah, or not, right? If the worker accepts the wage, isn't that enough uh, evidence that this that he believes this wage is worth the work? Well, yeah. he Leo's, could be desperate. You know, right, the, right. the worker exa- could be yeah, exactly just... right. So Leo recognizes what you know what I would call economic coercion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So basically, it's the um, what I mean by that, right? And what Leo is talking about is the fact that the desperation of a person's circumstances makes it necessary to accept a, a wage which is really not honorable for the work being done, right? right? And not fully adequate to support the person, yeah, right? But it will slow the drain, right? This is, so this is what happens is you need something is better than nothing, right? Right. <laughs> So the worker is the worker. You know, one of the great examples of this, of course, is in John Steinbeck's *The Grapes of Wrath*, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and whatever you may, you know, think of John Steinbeck and his poli- and his, his own politics, right? My understanding is he tended towards socialism, but it, he but he he got a lot of things right, you know, in his observations. And sure. and one of the things that he talks about is how the people would be poorer at the end of their workday than they were at the beginning of it, right? <laughs> Um, because, you know, the company, they lived on company land and they sort of rented the company house and they bought food at the company store. Yeah. And by the time they were done paying for all the goods that they needed, the wages that they'd earned are now uh, in the negative. Yeah. Right. So now they owe money to the company. And so they're further beholden. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, this is an extreme example of this kind of exploitation. But nonetheless, right, it you, you can you understand the principle immediately when you see that illustration. So what if the employer uh, is demanding from the worker all that the worker is capable of giving? So go back again to the late 1800s where yeah. you have people working 16 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week, right? And so that's that's really all they can do. I mean, they need to sleep sometime, right? Yeah. They never see their wife and kids. And yet when they do this, they're getting paid only enough to go into debt in life at a slower rate than they than they would be if they had no work at all. Yeah. Or or as Pope, uh, Pope Leo Thirteenth, he says, you know, that the the employer has a duty to look at the investment that the worker is putting into the production of whatever it is uh, he's producing, and at the same time the necessities of life for the worker. So he has right. to look at these two things, you know, that which I think I mean that's a pretty fair way to address what an employer should pay. Somebody, what are they going to invest in the company and what are their needs? And proportionately look at both of those. Right, right. And so, I mean, you know, the, from the church's point of view, there there is an obligation on the part of the employer to pay the worker. I, I don't want to say as much as he can, right? Because that's, that's, yeah. that's not exactly the right thing. But 
but to the extent economically feasible, right? To uh, by which I mean that he, the, the the you know the the employer isn't obligated to drive himself out of business and thereby leave everyone unemployed. Right, right, right. right. But to the extent that it's economically feasible to do so, he should pay the worker a wage that rewards the work done, the contribution made to the company, and does so in a way that permits the worker to provide for his family in a becoming manner, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Leo the Thirteenth actually tells us what that looks like to some extent, right? He says that the person should have some leisure time. Yeah. Right? You know, so this, this involves the idea of, like, actually vacation from time <laughs> to time. And also, um, you know, that he could... The way he phrases it is something that he, that he can put some small savings by. So in other words, that he can provide for his uh, retirement, right? Yeah. Or for needs that may arise in the future, that he's not living hand to mouth. Right. Right. So this is, so that's what a just wage then would look like from this point of view. And also, it's important to understand, right, that Catholic, that this is, this is the part that's going to sound really politically incorrect, but Catholic um, economic teaching, right, revolves around the idea, like literally economics, right? Mm-hmm. The um, the law of the household. The nuclear family is the basic cell of society. And so what, what Catholic economic theory involves, right, is the idea that a living wage is a wage by which one earner can provide for the needs of his family, his wife and his children, mm-hmm. right? While his wife uh, is able to maintain the uh, the household while the husband is, is doing other work. I mean, this is basically the model, right, right, in, right, right, in Catholic teaching, which, of course, hardly exists anywhere today. You know, so the employer has the the right to do that. But I think a lot of times where we get into uh, the ditch with with this is, you know, when you look at, say, poverty in America, uh-huh. it looks very different than poverty somewhere else. I mean, right. poverty here still means you probably have a car. Yeah. You have a cell phone. You probably still have cable. Um, you have internet access, you know, so I mean, the, the, the things that we consider necessary for life, you know, mm-hmm. and that an employer should provide so that I can have these things. That's where I think we're, where a lot of debate gets into it. But I think, but I think it's, a, you know, it, it is important to notice, you know, and that can all be worked out. But again, you've got to begin with kind of the basic structure that the employer needs to take into account the workers as not means of production, but take into account them as human persons and their human needs. Not, right. You know, and it's not just a fine, especially if an employee is going to be a full-time worker. You, you look at their human needs, not their, not just their economic needs. Right. You know, so like you said, you know, it's good for your workers to have leisure time. Right. It's good for your workers to have uh, these kind of things. They make them, th- these things make them better workers, make right. better employers. And, and to be fair, right, to be fair. <laughs> While it is still the case that exploitation of labor occurs in the contemporary West, Mm -hmm. it is also the case, right, that the major employers in the West have made tremendous strides in the right direction in in regards to these things. I mean, the kind of exploitative um, labor practices that, that Leo was addressing in 1891 (laughs) <laughs> don't really exist in the United States anymore. No, right? Yeah, and and um, at least not legally, right? Yeah. At least not not in not in plain view of anybody that I've ever met, right? Yeah. Um, people do have uh, days off from work, right? And they do. Uh, there are perks that companies give their employees, 
many, many people have health insurance through their employers, for yeah. example, right? Um, and we can argue about, you know, all kinds of policy decisions that make health insurance very expensive, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into that right now. But the, the, the point is that, um, that actually corporations, to a great extent, um, you know, have started treating their, I mean, for a long time now, right, have treated yeah. their employees fairly well. So the, it would be an unreasonable extrapolation from this conversation, right, to think that what's being directly criticized is the whole system of, um, of economics in the United States. Right. Now, that being said, I will criticize the system of economics in the United States to this extent, okay? Okay. That what Leo has in mind, and I think he's right on this, right? So I'm not saying it's just it's just Leo uh, has this idea and, um, you know, let's just, this is a totally new thing, uh, even though Encyclopedia was called Rerum Novarum, right? <laughs> But he's talking about the new, when he says Rerum Novarum, he's talking about the new situation that yeah. he's addressing, right? You know, this is a new idea. No, it's not actually a new idea. What he's talking about, it goes way back in the history of the church, right? I mean, you can you can go back to the Middle Ages and hear people talking about about just wages and uh, terms of loans and all sorts of economic issues, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what I think the major criticism would be, all right? And that is that Leo has in mind, and I think correctly and traditionally, right, Mm-hmm. This idea that, as I said, the central the central unit of society, right, is the nuclear family. Likewise, yeah. the central economic unit of society is the nuclear family. And therefore, right, that the ideal Catholic system is one that concentrates the concentrates productive property. If mm-hmm. you want to call mm-hmm. it capital, call it capital, right? Into the hands of nuclear families. Right, right. Okay, so th- this is this is very different, right, from oh, yeah. what from what we have now. You know, it seems like most of the people that you meet, right, today, work for companies, whether small businesses or big businesses. Now, keep in mind that even small businesses are big businesses in the sense, right? You know, even though they're privately held, they're mm-hmm, family, mm-hmm. they're family-owned corporations, right? I mean, you work for someone you are not related to, right? Okay? Right, right, yeah, and. Um, and so, and you know, there are fifty or more employees, or so. None, you're not related to any of them, right? <laughs> that is actually not really the um, the. That's not what uh, economic theory has in mind. The ideal situation, and there's of course we live in a fallen world, right? Where nothing is perfect, so we're, there's no expectation that everything's going to be this way. Sure, sure. Uh, nor even right that we could. How can I put this? Let's be clear, right? That there are um, there are benefits to scale. Yeah. So we wouldn't want to say, right, that we should not have any big businesses. Right. Right. Or significantly sized small businesses. Right. That these things do add something to the economy. What's wrong is that we have disincentives built into our system Mm. through regulatory burdens and systems of taxation. Right. Against self-employment. Yeah. So self-employment, right, is very difficult for people because, you know, the the entry costs of starting a business are extremely high in some instances, oh, yeah. prohibitively so, right? And, and and that's a problem, right? It, it prevents families from becoming sort of their own economic units. Mm, mm-hmm. That's interesting that the position of the world is that, well, everything is reduced to the individual, not the family. Uh, and and right. that's, that, yeah. that presents, from the very outset, uh, a problematic approach mm-hmm. to 
economics when the whole position is focused on the the, the individual as this basic cell or the individual as uh, that as opposed to you know the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's interesting about uh, bringing in the, the the family as the master of uh, production, at least in that you know smaller sense. What other kind of advice or, or direction does Pope Leo give us? Uh, with regards to what a capitalist society should look like. Like, okay, so laissez-faire capitalism is not the ideal. Right. And in fact, we don't have laissez-faire capitalism, and we haven't had laissez-faire capitalism for a very long time. Uh, And some people would say we never had it, right? You know, but um, I guess it depends how laissez-faire you're talking about. First of all, it is always and unavoidably the case that taxation and other policies, right, Mm-hmm. instituted by government has an economic impact we have to recognize that right mm-hmm. and the minute we recognize that then we can start to make intelligent decisions about what kinds of policies we want to initiate what kinds of taxation what kinds of regulations so as right to to enable the family to once again reclaim its position as an economic center for yeah. for society and right now there as i said there are huge disincentives against right? there we have our system is not erected to do that right yeah. now that's not a problem with the quote unquote free market so again going mm-hmm. back to pope francis he mentions entrepreneurialism actually leo the 13th is pro-entrepreneurialism too, right? He's pro-entrepreneurialism. Yeah. The free market is a good thing. You know, obviously within some within some limits from mm-hmm. a Catholic perspective. I mean, prostitution is not a legitimate, um, you know, it's not <laughs> right. a legitimate right. commodity, right? But given things that are morally licit to do and to consume, right? A free market is a, a good thing. Yeah. But free market and capitalism in the strict sense are not the same thing. Mm. Now, capitalism, the way the church understands it, all right, so this is, you know, in later in later um, documents, you'll see, you know, qualifying language like certain forms of, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> certain yeah, yeah. forms of. Capitalism. So basically what we're talking about, uh, originally the, the idea of capitalism, right, is a deliberately erected economic system, which through some power, right, through some sort of either government endorsement or Mm -hmm. government enabling, concentrates the means of production into the hands of very few people. Uh, This is the goal of the system, to to make sure that some are extraordinarily wealthy and others not. Yeah. And thus to secure those who have wealth in their positions of wealth, right, right, while while thereby preventing others from, from attaining it. Uh, that's not actually the system that we have in the United States at the moment. Now, it is the case that our system does have some of those effects because of the way that our regulatory burden prevents other people from entering and becoming competitive. Right. right? But our system, it, it, I mean, I think it would just be ignorant, right, to say that our system is quite that, right? <laughs> now, that being said, right, uh, if such a system exists, it's evil. Yeah. First of all, it, it moves against the idea of the universal destination of material goods, right? It yeah. privileges some vis-a-vis the goods of the earth at the expense of others. Such a system would if if such a system exists. Yeah. Right. And it's very it's very similar almost to communism in that the means of production are simply controlled by a few. In right. communism, it's the state; they take control of everything and and distribute it. Right. Whereas you know, in this kind of laissez-faire capitalism. It's in the hands of maybe a few uh, people or corporations, and they determine 
the distribution of it. So it's not the state. So, I mean, and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems that there may be some similarities in the actual playing out of these two systems. However, they're, they are a little bit different in who controls uh, the means of production in that right. way. So, yeah, and there, I mean, there are, there are similarities, right? If you can say, actually, that, for example, uh, China, right, is, is actually a system of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's a system of um, state capitalism. Yeah. The, the, where the state is the capitalist. Yeah. Uh, it operates in such a way as to concentrate the means of production into its own hands at the expense, really, of the, of the, the populace, yeah. right? You know, and then it, you also had fascism. Right. And I know that that term is bandied about today um, as if, you know, it, it means someone with conservative ideas. But actually, fascism doesn't have anything to do with that. Right. <laughs> fascism really is about the um, the use of the mechanisms of the state. Right. To essentially pick pick the winners and losers in the economic system. Right. So to choose which companies to prop up and which ones you approve certain companies and not others, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you assign to them tasks. What is it that they're going to do? And um, and so, you know, you can, if you want to know who's the fascist, right, it's, it's the person, it's the person who wants to say, you know, this particular industry is going to be suppressed while this other industry, by contrast, is going to be um, promoted, promoted yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, um, subsidized and et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. And we'll regulate in such a way as to ensure that it's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So that's actually the fascist right there. Yeah. Right. Two points that I think are, are important is the first, I think what he has to say is important for us because uh, we're experiencing something that he points out in the very beginning of his. And he says two things have happened. There have been new developments in technology and there's been a decline in morals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why that's, you know, two of the reasons why he wrote this. With those two reasons, which I think aptly also describe our current uh, right. current culture as well, right? Is these two things? Yeah. So, so going back to the idea of laissez-faire economics, right? Yeah. Laissez-faire capitalism. A laissez, let's say, a laissez-faire free market entrepreneurial okay. system. Let's call it that. All right. Right. A laissez-faire free market entrepreneurial system conducted within a populace that is morally well founded, right? Morally well constituted. Okay will actually be a moral system. Right. Right. Now, th- this, interestingly enough, right, I-, I think what I just said in a nutshell represents, I don't want to speak for people, but in my understanding, right, represents the thesis advanced uh, by the Acton Institute. Mm. Okay. That, it seems to me, is their view. That's the view they're promoting, right? And, right. and it seems to me that it is actually completely correct. Right. Right. That I, 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 so, again, listen to what I'm saying. It's not that the market magically solves all of our problems, right? right? We're saying the free market entrepreneurial system, if it is conducted by a populace, right? If if you have virtuous people living in that kind of a situation, right? Then what they do, right? The choices they make will be informed by their good consciences. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And and therefore will lead to um, I mean maybe not always they they'll make mistakes right don't get yeah. me wrong there'll be prudential mistakes and there'll be imperfections and there there'll probably be needs for safety nets uh, here and there in some way or another right sure. 
but people will tend to do good things if, in fact, they're virtuous. That's what it means to be virtuous, right? <laughs> to be virtuous is to be habitually inclined to do the good in any given situation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you have a virtuous, a virtuous populace acting freely in the economic order, they will act virtuously. They'll act well. Yeah. in the economic order, right? And yeah. they'll do good. Well, I think that's a, I think that's the biggest problem today is that, you know, we lack this virtue. And so when it comes to economics, everybody becomes self-interested. And that's one thing again, uh the, the second thing I think that Leo the 13th does well in this is not only does he talk about the what the employee or the employers have to give their employees, but he also talks about uh kind of the disposition of the employee. Oh, yeah. You know, you need right. to respect the property of your employer. Right. Uh, you need to serve him well, you know, and right. because, and again, you know, not just because he's giving you a just wage because he, but because he too is a human person. And, right. and you know, and I think that's, that's one thing that kind of just gets thrown all out of, all out of uh, line today is we, we don't recognize those things. Mm-hmm. It becomes this merely economic transition between uh, two parties. Uh, it doesn't like I give you my time. I don't really have a duty to give you my time. Well, I'm just mm-hmm. giving you my time. But you know, again, uh, uh, if we had that virtuous uh, situation, uh, the employer would recognize what is right towards his employee, and the employee as well would recognize the right uh, or, or the the duties he needs to give mm-hmm. to his employer. Right, that's right. So, um, so one of the interesting observations, right, that you might make, mm-hmm. okay, is that in certain parts of the country, there are whole industries that have essentially evaporated, right, that used to be the backbone of our society. Yeah. Right? That used to be sort of the economic backbone. And one could ask, well, why, why did that occur? Now, I'm not an expert in this field, so sure. I don't... I don't really know, like, uh, I don't know on the basis of any first-hand scholarship, right, uh, the answer to that question. But I've had conversations with people about this who are much better informed on the matter than I. And I've heard some interesting statements made, right? What Leo actually is pointing to in mm-hmm. some uh, is some cases in which workers... Now, keep in mind, the labor movement is starting at this point, right? Sure, so sure, he's sure. cautioning against, as you mentioned, right, this adversarial relationship between between employer and employee Yeah, that can arise, right? And he's saying that there's a tendency for people to become just as selfish in, the, in pursuit of their own, um, their own gains as they're accusing their employer of being, right? Yeah. So while it's wrong, as you said, right, it's war- wrong for the employer to take such a posture, it's also wrong for the worker to do so. And if if the workforce unionizes and and right attempts to extract absolutely as much as possible from the employer, yeah, there's a risk that comes with that, right? Yeah, which is basically that the labor force will price itself out of its own market. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I've been I've been told by some economists, by some economists, right, that mm-hmm. actually this. This does explain, to a large extent, what happened to the steel industry, uh, to various industries, you know, the, the production industries in the United States. And I don't know if that's a complete and sufficient explanation, but it does sure. seem to me likely that it's that it's uh, it's at least a contributing factor in some cases, right? That that workers can demand so so much, right? That the employer uh, will no longer have a profit at the end of that exchange, and then everyone is out of work. 
think to bring this to a headway, I think it, this goes back to what we talked about in one of the previous podcasts uh, with Dr. Smith, that a lot of this, I think, can be fixed or worsened with how we educate. Um, that many times education today is directed towards a job uh-huh. in a completely pragmatic sense, as opposed to like the classical view of education as working towards human flourishment and and that you know that aristotelian understanding that virtue uh, is really at the heart of of education and i think again you know when you look at economics there's no perfect system um, but what is necessary to to you know and, and there are certain positions that are just completely condemned like communism socialism but even those forms of of even those forms of capitalism they still need those virtues uh, and those virtuous people to uh, uh, to live in and to operate those things. That without that, it just becomes again these kind of self-interested parties going back and forth at each other. Right. So so you know this returns us to you know the theme that is um, so much uh, in the heart of Doctor Smith, right? Which is <laughs> the common good. Yeah. Okay. We have in contemporary society all but lost such a notion. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This is a really, really big problem for us, right? Now, it, here, let me give you a model for thinking about the common good. And imagine if we can sort of perform the, the exercise of trying to superimpose that model mm-hmm. on our economic relationships between uh, employer and employee or whatever the particular situation might be. Sure. The model of nurses, doctors, anesthetists, and so forth, right, in an operating room. They're, they're working, uh, one would imagine, right, to restore the health of the patient. Mm-hmm. And they all have different tasks, and they have different levels of authority in the room. They have different expertise and so forth, right? And someone is in charge mm-hmm. in that environment, right? But each person is entrusted with the exercise of his or her own um, responsibilities vis-a-vis that common good. Right. which is the restoration of the health of the patient. You know, so they're not competing with each other in the room. Mm-hmm. They're working in harmony with each other, right? Even though, again, there is distinction of rank, uh, distinction of position. They're not all compensated exactly the same, right. right? And so forth. If we think about our economic system this way, we see ourselves as cooperators in a common good, which is the establishment of a society in which human beings can flourish, right? Yeah. Including the employee, Right. And and the consumer who buys the products we produce or, you know, enjoys the services that we provide, that we're all working to, to build that kind of a society in which we all want to live. Right, right. 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 And in the particular way that we that we have to contribute to it. Right. Then I think, you know, where we've taken a major step in the right direction. Again, going back to I think it's, you know, the, the virtuous person and the virtuous, the virtues we build up in a society those social virtues that I think, you know, we bring to it, but also at the same time, still remaining and giving people that freedom, that right to private property. And so, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Buzikelli, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've given us a lot to think about. And I think this is, uh, like I said, very important for today as we, we look at the, the economic systems that we operate in and, and particularly when you know, we have different people recommending different things, uh, whether it be socialism, which is completely untenable with the Catholic faith, or, or even how do we conduct the free market? How do we conduct our, our capitalism? 
that it cannot just be this unfettered thing, that it, that there does need to be uh, some principles applied to it. But at the same time, like I think Pope Leo did well, is on every level, wherever we fall as employer, employee, as legislator, we all need to look at the responsibilities and duties of each um, and to, again, begin with everybody as a human person and looking at the human needs of each, whether they be employer or employee, and have those uh, kind of that virtuous disposition uh, towards each other. Please check us out at uh, catholicstudiesacademy.com. We have a lot more content there. Uh, you can subscribe to our courses. We offer courses in theology and philosophy that Dr. Smith and Dr. Bruce Kelly teach and teach very well. And we also have all kinds of other content on there, YouTube videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Uh, so until next time, God bless.